Welcome to season two of Talking PFAS. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I recommend that you have a listen to season one to catch up on some of the foundational chats we had about PFAS. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Last week, I brought you an episode of Talking PFAS recorded at the 2019 Cleanup Conference in Adelaide. I encourage you to have a listen to this important conversation with Professor Ravi Naidu from CRC Care. Another speaker at the Cleanup Conference, Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science and Analytical Chemistry at Stockholm University in Sweden, said the PFAS universe is extremely large of more than 4,700 PFAS compounds and there is diverse structures and that means there is diverse fate and transport. He said the only commonality in the PFAS universe is that they are or break down to form highly persistent substances. The diversity of PFAS compounds is one challenge for remediators, but also there are significant costs with remediation of PFAS contaminated sites. IPEN is a network of non-governmental organisations working in more than 100 countries to reduce and eliminate the harm to human health and the environment from toxic chemicals. They've produced a range of excellent reports on PFAS. Dr Richard Stewart is recognised globally as an industry leader in the field of PFAS remediation. Part of his contribution to a new 2019 IPEN report read, Due to their inherent stability... PFAS contaminants are not amenable to many of the traditional remediation methods. The economic consequences of this are unprecedented, with industry and academic experts putting the potential PFAS contamination cleanup bill at between 30 billion and 1 trillion US dollars. Today's conversation was also recorded at the Cleanup Conference in Adelaide. It's a discussion with Helena Henriksen, an environmental engineer from Sweden. Helena believes that there is not one size fits all for every PFAS contamination problem. She says the main treatments for PFAS contamination involve thermal, chemistry and mechanical options. She says by combining them, we can get a better solution than just using one of them. Now to today's discussion. Okay, I'm at the Cleanup Conference 2019 with the second international PFAS conference, and I'm talking with Helena Henriksen from Envitech Solutions AB, based in Sweden. Is that your own company? Uh, it was my own company until uh, six months ago when we sold, but I'm still running the company. Okay, so do you do much work with PFAS? PFAS is the emerging contaminant, and since I'm a technical solution geek, uh, I like things that need to be solved, so of course this is a major interest. So you work in the area of remediation? Yes. What's your area of expertise? Uh, I'm an environmental engineer, actually from here, Griffith University in Australia. Uh, I graduated in 2004, and since then I've been working with different remediation techniques. Mostly my focus has been in situ, to bring that technique forward, because I believe in it. I don't think dig and dump is the end solution because you're taking a contaminant, moving it from somewhere to another place. And while that has worked before with other contaminants, PFAS now gives us a problem where it spreads where you put it. And so that's why it's causing this great interest in me because it's, it's, it's a new problem. And I like problems. Okay. And how long have you been looking at PFAS? Well, PFAS has been emerging. We haven't known that much about it for so long, but I've been in contact with it for, I've seen it out there for about five years, I think. And then I've started working with the latest three years. 
It's a steep learning curve, isn't it? It is a steep learning curve, but data is not coming out that quick. Have you personally developed methods for PFAS removal? I have not. Uh, My specialty is to put techniques that other see work for one problem. And if I have a problem which needs many solutions, that's what I'm good at. I take different techniques and create treatment trains, as we call them. You start with one solution where it's best suited, then you apply the next technology for their best, where they're best suited, and one plus one becomes the better solution than them separately. So that's basically what I'm good at. What do you see as the key remediation challenges with PFAS chemicals? Well, for PFAS is a new contaminant, and so the solutions that we're using might also be new. So one of the issues is a trust issue. There's no long-term evaluation of the solutions. So that's one. The second one is that um, everyone is sort of protective of their solution. And for this problem, as many other problems, it's not one solution. You need to work together, and we need to be much better there. And the third I see is that consultants feel unsure because they haven't been investigating it for very long. So in their opinion, we always need to know more before action. But I think, especially here, what we need is action. So that's what I personally see as a problem. Is it a different approach in Australia? It's pretty much the same approaches. US, Europe and Australia, I've I've visited the US too, and I know Europe, and now I see what you Australians do. It's a little bit different techniques, uh, which it shouldn't be because we're facing the same problem. And I think we can learn more if we look out to each other and see what has been done over there. It's like, oh, you've done this and that proved that. Okay, then I don't have to do it again. I can maybe try something else. Uh, So a little bit different, yes. So what I've noticed is people are in individual silos with this issue and the ones with the deep pockets get to spend the most on R&D, research and development, and then not necessarily sharing the information. Is that what you have noticed? That is one of the problems, yes. But also, if one solution works, everyone gets super excited and wants to use that solution... But one thing that I'm working with daily, and it's one of my missions, is to see that one solution works perfect in one place, but maybe not in another. So it's just as important to know the pros of a solution, but also the consequences. Where can you not use it? Because as soon as you start using a good solution on a place where it doesn't work, it brings the results down, it it backtalks the equipment and the solution. People are starting to say, oh, but that doesn't work. But it does work, it just doesn't work everywhere. Do you have an answer for why it doesn't work everywhere? Yeah, that depends on, uh, for example, some methods are sensitive to soil particles of different fractions. So then you need a pre-treatment system for one site, at another site you don't. There can be multiple contaminants at one site and you haven't really found them. And so your solution is not working due to something else because you haven't been investigating all parameters. So so different things. Maybe some treatment methods works in sand, some in clay. You need to use treatment trains to maybe make them work at both sites. Can you define a treatment train in the most simplest way? Well, the background to a treatment train is that if you have a solution, for example, pump and treat, It is really good with high concentrations. You get lots out, you pump it out, you get that concentration out. 
But when the concentration starts to get low, you're just pumping water. And the system is costing the same, but you are not catching the contaminant. At that point, if you start with a bioremediation, for example, if it's petroleum, then you have bacteria in the ground that eats it naturally. Like land farming. Yeah. Land farming or if you have a, an aquifer, like a water body, you inject oxygen. There's oxygen powder you can inject and all the bacteria gets, ooh, now I, I like this environment, now I want to eat more. And that is a system that now takes over. Instead of pumping up low concentrations, natural bacteria is, is actually eating it now and it becomes much more cost-effective and they're very good at reducing it because that's what they're built for. Okay, so I have heard that there is no bioremediation methods for PFAS. Is that not true? Oh, that is true. There is no bioremediation. We people made it to last forever. And that's one of the big problems. So now we are trying with thermal and chemistry and mechanical. For PFAS, those are the three methods. But by combining them, we can get a better solution than just using one of them. Immobilisation is something I've heard a lot about. And I don't understand how that works, but at the recent parliamentary inquiry in Australia, they brought it up as a method, defence, and they talked about that there is a possibility to inject a chemical into the ground, but they didn't want to do that. So it was some consideration of this, and it caused a lot of concern for communities that are impacted, the thoughts that they might use another chemical to destroy a chemical. What sort of things have you seen in the area for immobilisation? I believe, I'm a strong believer in mobilisation. I think for now we don't have a solution, so we have to work with what we got until that solution comes along. For example, I'm doing one of the first projects, I think it's the first project in the world, where we're using two combined methods for stabilisation, both for groundwater and for unsaturated soil, which is the soil above the groundwater. In this project, we are injecting in the ground liquefied activated carbon, that creates a carbon filter, just as we use it with pump and treat, but in the ground. So you're talking about GAC? No, I'm talking about LAC. So instead of bringing the water up the ground and pumping it through a granule activated carbon, GAC, you're keeping it in the ground. And the positive thing about that is that the flow rates are so low that the contact time is getting really big. And that is the big issue with when you bring it up with the whole biocarbon doesn't last that long, it's because you have to push a lot of mass through the carbon really quickly. In the ground, you have sites that only move one metre a year. I think someone told me Oki was 52. That's correct. They're the numbers I've got from Defence. Yeah, but that's 52 metres a year. If you think about the flow rate compared to what you pump up, that's nothing. So that is a solution that is used in, I know, Italy and US. Canada has a bit of a longer study on it. And I have been doing a pilot trial, the first one in EU. From the results we've seen, we have only seen one, so it's too early to say anything. But we've seen that we put in the barrier, we have an immediate drop in concentration in the barrier. And, and now we're waiting to see what happens downstream. Have you tested the water that goes through that barrier? We have done uh, investigations, yes, so we know what it contains. So, yeah, it's all investigated for many years, as many sites are. But for this trial, we put in the barrier and the water's passing through it. The concentrates in the barrier are dropping. So that's what we're doing for the groundwater, to stop it from leaching out into the Baltic Sea. Do you have percentages yet, or is it too early to say? 
too early to say. But so not being replicated enough? No, since it's just one month. But for the project that has been done, that's an immediate drop and it goes almost to non-detect straight away. The second one is that we're using a granule-activated carbon a powder. It's actually from Australia, which has some other ingredients in it as well. It stabilises PFAS really well. In soil, I've done two projects in Sweden where we've shown that we have about uh, 94 to 99.9% .9 reduction uh, of, of leachate. And so we've taken that soil, treated it and put it in a landfill so it doesn't leach. That's amazing, actually because then that means that soil can be transferred to the landfill without extra cost. Yes, there's always a cost bringing it into the landfill, but mm -hmm. due to that it's non-leaching now, it's a lower class, uh, it doesn't cost as much to bring yeah. into the landfill. And it could go to normal landfill. Yes, that's what we're doing. So it doesn't have to go to a specialised landfill. Exactly. Okay, so whether it's got a clay liner or no clay liner, is that an issue? No, uh, that's a thing you use in Australia. Mm -hmm. We use different in, in Europe. But no, we are taking it into like a standard landfill. The work that you're doing now, this combined method, you set a world first. You believe? I believe so, yes. The soil stabilisation method will help us to treat the topsoil. And for the liquid activated carbon, it will treat the groundwater. And after we have done this, the council will start building on it and use it straight away. I don't think it's been done. Other techniques have probably been used together, but not these two. And is this site that you're going to be doing this method on, is it just PFAS as the major contaminant? No, it's not. We're doing this because PFAS is present. The other contaminants include metals, but also hydrocarbons, but pretty stable hydrocarbons. Okay, so it's because of PFAS you've chosen this method for this problem. We're doing this, yes, because of the PFAS. All right, let's talk about cost. How does the LAC and this GAC together compare to, say, pump and treat in very general terms? Since the LAC is in situ and you inject it with a drilling rig once and it sits there, compared to pump and treat, in my opinion, it is very cost effective. Depending on the high flow rates or what concentration of contaminants, you might have to be reapplying. We don't know that because we haven't been using it long enough to evaluate it. But even so, the cost of GAC for water treatment is really high. So it's not a really hard number to beat. So if you're using GAC above the ground for pump and treat, you have to replace the used GAC often, as you already mentioned, and then that has to be stored or go to a specialised area for destruction or a special landfill, ideally destruction. What happens to this media, this liquefied GAC that you're putting into the ground, when that needs to be replaced? Well, it's just carbon, so it sits there. And what happens when, when it's not being used or when it's fully loaded, you need to top up with more. When you're done, depending on the depth, of course, of the injection, how deep down it is, you can dig it out if you want to or if you just leave it because it's just carbon. When you're done, if the contamination is gone, there will be no through flow because it's gone. Okay, so in my total lack of understanding of remediation and the way that a lot of people might think, if that material becomes very highly contaminated with PFAS chemicals, aren't you pushing 
clean water then through a very dirty contaminated PFAS filter that's going to put it back into the water coming out the other end? I would say no because what you have is a filter that absorbs contaminant Mm -hmm. and when it has absorbed all the contaminant it can take it will let through contaminants but it won't push them off it's sorbed so it will stay sorbed. So clean water could go through a very contaminated lac filter and still come out clean at the other end? Or is that what you're testing? That is what we're testing, but that's the idea, yes. It's not letting go. That's the whole thing with GAC and, and, and lac. It doesn't let go. It, yeah, it's sorbed. Yeah. It's sorbed to it. But you could replace it if you need to. Yes, if it's a shallow installation, you could just dig it out. It's harder at 22 metres. What's your opinion of PFAS as a contaminant? Well, it's man-made, so we did a good job there. Now we're going to clean up after ourselves. It's a nasty contaminant. We have still lots to investigate about it, on just how toxic it is and how many are toxic. And I think it needs to be more known to the public what PFAS is. And I think what we all need to know is that we actually are moving forward. It's not always bad things. Yeah, it is bad. It is really bad, but good things are happening Man created it, and we are really good at creating things. So solutions are coming along. So I see there's hope. That's good, because a lot of the people on contaminated properties that are listening to this podcast, for them it is harder because they are living on these highly contaminated areas that are not being remediated. There's no remediation that's happened on them in Australia and not likely to at this point. They see Department of Defence doing a lot of work on their own sites and they get frustrated nothing's happening for them. This technology that you're working on, is there possibilities it could be used on contaminated rural land? But who would pay? That's the question. That is always the question, unfortunately. Mm. But yes. So it could work theoretically, but then we've got to find who pays for it. Exactly. And one of the things that got me really excited about liquid activated carbon is when they showed me, and I know this is being done in several places in the world, where you don't use it to remediate the source, but you use it to protect the target. So, for example, if you have a drinking water well somewhere in a PFAS contaminated area, what they do is they inject the liquefied activated carbon as a circle around it, which means that you're not taking care of the big costing plume, but you're just remediating the the well itself. Like a lot of schools, they've been finding schools in America that have these contaminated groundwater wells. It would work in that situation. From what I've seen, yeah, and what the uh, producers are showing, and they're actually doing these projects as well, yes. And so also for residents that are listening here in Williamtown, they live in a floodplain, so as far as I understand, there is still contaminated water leaving the RAF base at Williamtown, and that's on the record at the parliamentary inquiry, that it is not being completely stopped. And I know residents listening are just saying, please stop it. Is this liquefied activated carbon a good solution to use in these big, highly contaminated drains? So we've got a major drain coming off the base with several other drains from it into different communities. Fullerton Cove, Saltash, Williamtown. Would it work, perhaps? What you need to know before we can't answer that question is the flow rates and 
other contaminates, how much other biological material, because it is a normal carbon filter. So everything that affects a normal carbon filter affects it in the ground. But the producers of these has a model that they can put in and they can see if it's a solution. Once again, it's not one for all, but there are places where it's not suitable. For example, with really high flowing uh, groundwater. It's a hard question for you to answer, but it comes back again to the polluter and what they're willing to pay for as well. Yes, always. Yeah. You said that this liquefied activated carbon has been used in Europe, is that right? Uh, Where is it being used? It is being used in Italy. I know there's a big site that uses it. I have done the pilot in Sweden. So you're here at the Cleanup Conference. What has been your takeaways in regard to PFAS here as far as areas we need more focus on? Or have you learnt anything that you didn't know before about PFAS? I haven't learned anything new about PFAS, but there are a few techniques here that I sort of knew about that I'm going to try out. Uh, For example, um, in Europe, we are very carbon-based as a solution for the pump and treat. Pump and treat maybe costs a lot, but there are definitely places where they work and are a really good solution. And here in Australia, you seem to use resins, and we haven't used that in Sweden so much, so I'm keen to try it. And I will do that soon. And what I understand with the resins is that they are even reusing it. So once it's been spent, it's full of PFAS, somehow they're cleaning it and reusing it. Do you think it's a good method or are you just looking into it? I'm looking into it, but it is a good method. And what it is, basically, is that you have a a dirty filter and you're, you're washing it down so that the filter is reused, but you get a concentrate and... That's one of the good things with the new technique coming up now is that from the beginning we had a big gack that needed to be taken care of. Now you can have a resin or even gack you can regenerate, I think. But what you do is you wash the filter media and the concentrate becomes much smaller in volume. More concentrated, yes, but smaller in batch, which makes it easier to handle. Easier to dispose. So when you're washing it, they're not washing it down the drain. Residents can be assured it's being captured. I don't know what people are doing out there, but in theory... It It, should should be captured. Yes. So in Sweden, is there a lot of concern about PFAS? There is. Same as you, you have the problem with old defence sites contaminating drinking water and areas have been closed. PFAS has been recorded to have been going into drinking water for a long time. And what about in the food chain or in wastewater treatment plants, biosolids, landfills? Is that an issue in Sweden? Are you looking at that too? We are looking at that and it is an issue in Sweden. It's in everywhere you look, all over the world. Has Sweden got just guidelines or has it got regulations, maximum contaminant levels for drinking water, for instance? We have. I don't know how you say it in English, but there is a, uh, it's a proposed level and that proposed level is being used. So th- probably that's like a guideline? Yeah, yeah. It, it hasn't got any regulatory teeth? Well, it's, it is being used as, as a limit, as, as a target value, yes. So it's being taken seriously as a guideline value? Yes, it has. What do you think needs to happen to speed up elimination of this PFAS? We are dealing with all the PFAS that's been created since the 50s now in our lifetime. What do you think needs to happen to make this whole process smoother or quicker? What needs to happen is one thing that we're kind of bad at, and that's working together. You think collaboration is key? 
I think collaboration is key to, to the solution, yes. One solution is not going to cut it, but working together and sharing information, sharing solutions, sharing results, that is what will bring us forward to the solution of the PFAS problem. Is Sweden a very collaborative environment for sharing of results? I think it's the same all over the world. It's people-based. It depends on the person, depends on the organisation. Are you finding reluctance is occurring where people have great methods but they won't share the detail? No, not, not really. I mean, investigational data is always hard to get because of, of the owner of the problem doesn't want to share it. But I'm seeing people who are remediating and getting results, they want to share it. I know it behaves differently, this contaminant. We, we all know that. It behaves very differently. It's very mobile. There's so many of them so many compounds. Do you think that this demands a very collaborative approach more than any other contaminant? Yes, I do. Because there's PFAS and then there's also other contaminants. So we need everyone who's good at one thing might not be good at another. And if we work together, I think that would help out a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you would share it. Next episode will be the final one for Talking PFAS for this season and it'll be the conversation I had with a Queensland researcher about PFAS in wastewater treatment plants, landfills, biosolids and even floodwaters. So when we measured the concentrations of PFAS in both the influent and effluent, we found something interesting, which was the effluent sample, so that treated water, actually had higher concentrations of PFAS. And uh, this is reflected in other studies of a similar nature. And it suggests that something's happening to these PFAS chemicals during the treatment process. There's some kind of transformation or enhancement of the levels. I'll bring you that very important discussion early in November. Thanks again for listening and don't forget you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS and you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, All information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.